You're listening to. Hey, you're listening to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And we are here with an author chat with K-Ming Chang about her latest novel, Organ Meats. As always, Books and Boba is supported by our listeners at patreon.com slash booksandboba, where our Patreon supporters get access to our members-only Discord server, and supporters at the Honey Boba level um, get access to our monthly bonus chat show, uh, Boba Chats, as well as the opportunity to suggest and help us decide one of our book club picks every quarter. So if that sounds good to you, um, head on over and become a supporter. Uh, but yeah, we had a great chat with K-Ming Chang. Uh, she is an author that we've been wanting to get on the podcast for a while now, um, ever since her second book, her short story collection, Gods of Want. She is a writer who draws a lot of inspiration from Chinese and Asian folklore, and her writing style is very eclectic and abstract, um, steeped in metaphor and poetry. And as the title suggests, um, Orgimits also wanders into the realm of the grotesque as well. Um, yeah, it was definitely one of the more challenging reads um, that we've read in recent memory, but definitely a book I was glad to have gotten through. Yeah, so we talked to Kaming about um, her journey as a writer. She comes from a poetry background and how uh, she transitioned into novel writing. Uh, we talked to her about dogs and dog women hybrids, uh, lineage, uh, Asian folktales, lots of good stuff in our conversation. Yeah, so without further ado, please enjoy our author chat with Kaming Chang. We are here with K-Ming Chang, a Kundiman Fellow, a Lambda Literary Award winner, and a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 honoree. She is the <laughs> author of the novel Bestiary and story collection Gods of Want. And we are here today to talk about her latest novel, Organ Meats. Welcome to the show, K-Ming. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored and really excited to get a chance to speak to you. Yeah, we always love to start off our discussions learning more about um, the journey that our authors take um, to becoming, you know, published novelists. So um, can you walk us through what your journey looks like? Yeah, so my journey began when I was a kid. Um, I was a very obsessive journal and diary writer when I was a child. Um, I was constantly eavesdropping um, gossiping, <laughs> um, slandering, uh, making up uh kind of fabulous situations. Um, and so I think my writer, my, my journey as a writer began as, um, as like a kind of a gossip columnist, but just for myself. Um, uh, and so mm. I always had this attachment to oral storytelling and the oral form and having this desire to kind of record it and, um, be privy to, uh, I guess, forms of history that we don't typically consider, consider to be part of the official historical record. Um, and I think that's where my kind of love of storytelling began. Um, and I, as I grew, grew older, um, I found poetry as a form um, that I loved really dearly. Um, I think because it, it really deconstructed all of the rules around language and really gave so much permission to break out of, you know, grammatical structures and narrative structures 
and be very, very playful with language, which I found really, really liberating. Um, and so for a while, I was like, I'm only going to write poetry. I'm only going to read poetry. I'm going to write a poetry book. I'm never going to touch any other genre. Um, but when I was in undergrad, I had the opportunity to take a fiction workshop. Um, it was a little bit like kind of like you know, slipping the medicine into the, <laughs> um, into the like lump of bread. Um, because I, I signed up for a poetry class and there was also like a nonfiction prose writing element, um, to that class. Um, so I was kind of, I tricked myself into writing prose. Um, and I realized that I loved feeling like a beginner in that form. And again, that liberating feeling of like, oh, because I'm an amateur, I can't really mess anything up. I can't really make any mistakes. Um, so from there, I wrote my first book, Bestiary, not really knowing if it was like nonfiction, if it was an essay collection, if it was fiction, um, and querying that um, with agents in New York. Um, and very, very lucky was able to find my agent, Julia Cardin, who then uh, represented the book and sold it to One World. Um, and I've been with One World ever since, which is really amazing. And I've gotten to work with my editor currently that I'm working with. Um, on all three books in some capacity, uh, which has been such a beautiful kind of trilogy <laughs> of experience. So yeah, that's kind of the full the full arc, <laughs> maybe abbreviated arc of, of my journey. Yeah, I mean, I would love to hear about your, I guess, adventure querying your book because your writing style is very, um, let's say, distinct, very unique. Um, and your subject matter is very like, as someone who grew up reading I used to have like a bilingual books that had Chinese folklore and things like that. It was really cool to see those stories being being published. Um, was that was it a hard sell when you were like looking for someone to take your book? Yeah, what was interesting is with my first book when I was querying, I queried it as a nonfiction collection, and I was thinking a lot about Maxine Hong Kingston's work and the ways that that kind of bends genre. Um, and transcends genre in a lot of ways and how her book is categorized as memoir even though there are these very speculative mythological fabulous and experimental elements that I love so much um, I just think she's a wildly experimental writer and we don't give her enough credit <laughs> um, for being so cutting edge um, and innovative um, so I was kind of hoping to follow in the footsteps of so many Asian American writers um, who I loved and who were always kind of genre breaking. A Marilyn Chin is another kind of uh, figure of Asian American literature whose books I loved so much. Her novel, Revenge of the Mooncake Vixen, it's like short story collection and also novel. And she's also a poet. So I feel like it's part of the Asian American literary tradition to um, oftentimes respond to forms of myth, folklore, inherited literature, inherited storytelling, oral storytelling, but then also to be so experimental, to be so postmodern, to be so form breaking. Um, and so in some ways, I really, I, I really didn't have to forge a path of my own in any way. <laughs> I had all of these titles and these writers that I could pull in and gesture to as part of the canon, the literary canon that I was interested in conversing with and being a part of. Yeah, that's the great thing about how Asian American literature has evolved in the last, you know, five, 10 years. Uh, you know, it, it used to be like, oh, we can only have one, but now we have so many in the canon, like you said, and we are allowed to be experimental. So uh, that's really, mm -hmm. that's really cool that you got inspiration from all of these uh, cutting-edge Asian-American writers who came before you. Um, so moving on to your uh, latest book, Organ Meats, um, 
I, I couldn't help but notice in your acknowledgments, you call organ meats a part of a mythic triptych. Uh, can you tell us the reason why and how did your previous works prepare you for this book? Yeah, I love that question. And I very jokingly have been telling everyone while I've been doing events for this book that I should go back and correct those acknowledgments and call it the fecal trio instead. <laughs> um, because I was like, it's, it's mythological, but then all three books are very like scatological <laughs> um, and include feces in some capacity, oftentimes like I'm in a mythological capacity. So I feel a little bit regret about not getting to include that in the acknowledgments. But um, yeah, I love that question of like, oh, how in what ways did I feel prepared for organ meats? Because I think organ meats was very surprising to me as a writer. It arrived in this um, kind of fever dream-esque state. Um, and it was an interesting culmination of my previous two books. I always describe it that organ meets is like the door at the end of a hallway and gods of wine and bestiary were these kinds of, were these doors that were leading me to that final or were, were kind of lining the hallway, but that is the final destination. Um, or like the final most bizarre funhouse mirror <laughs> in the entire exhibit of funhouse mirrors. Um, I feel like it's, it's, kind of pushing the style that I was experimenting with in my first two books to its most extreme um, and kind of maybe is the most dreamlike or fantastical or disorienting of everything I'd ever written. Um, and uh, it's also a book about return. So there is a kind of circularity where I feel like it loops me back into bestiary and feels very much like a spiritual sibling of my first book. Um, but I wrote all three books at around a certain period of my life. Um, and when I was very stylistically kind of immersed in a certain maximalist aesthetic. Um, so I, I feel very much like they're, they're like a, a neighborhood, like the, the three houses and the three little pigs, maybe <laughs> <laughs> they're just neighbors to each other. Yeah. Um, I guess for, um, listeners who aren't familiar with your book yet, um, can you Briefly describe how you would describe um, what Organ Meats is about. Yeah, it's a difficult, it's a difficult, <laughs> it's a difficult elevator pitch. <laughs> but I, there's a Goodreads review that my friend sent me that I think captures it so brilliantly that I wish I could have it like emblazoned mm -hmm. on me as a tattoo. But the Goodreads review described it as Elena Ferrante's My Brilliant Friend for Girls Who Think Cannibalism is Sexy. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> So it's it's a coming of age book about two best friends, Anita and Rainey, um, who realize that they're descended from these feral dogs, um, from these wild dogs. And um, they kind of delve into the stories of their lineage and, and unearth their their origin stories um, and the the stories that kind of link their maternal lineages. Um, while also <laughs> uh, one of the girls falls into kind of a rapid dog bite induced coma and she has to be roused from this coma and her soul kind of wanders away in a dream. And it's the other girl's responsibility to basically rebuild her body out of scavenged organs um, in order to have some kind of return origin place for the other girl to return to. It sounds very complicated. <laughs> anyway, the Goodreads review is much more succinct and makes more sense than whatever it is I just said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the core of your story is about two childhood friends who, you know, lose touch and are trying to reconnect. And that's a story that we've seen a lot, yeah. but told in a very, very interesting, very visceral, very at times gross way. Um, 
want to ask, like, when you were envisioning your book, like, was the story, was this story of these two friends always like the central relationship that you wanted to explore? No, actually, it wasn't. For a long time, I only had the dog's voice. So there's a chorus of dogs um, that form this collective voice, um, polyphonic voice that kind of appears throughout the book in different forms and in different stories. And for a long time, I only had that dog's voice kind of grounding me while I was writing. Um, And the book almost felt more like a historical artifact. It was more about the retelling of the history of these dogs through their voices, um, through this kind of pulling together or pulling together a landscape of language. So it was a very, I think it was a very horizontal story in some ways where they were navigating this this map, this landscape, rather than necessarily thinking about a singular narrative thread that we would be able to follow and kind of progress, um, that would progress and unfurl throughout the book. Um, but I realized as I was writing those dogs, um, and I was, I was lost, I was lost in their mountainous vision of the world, um, that they, there was some kind of modern day contemporary component um, that the dogs would then speak through um, and that they would have these other forms um, that maybe I could build uh, a certain kind of intimacy around. Um, so the, so Anita and Rainey actually came later in the process for me. And I had just like a hundred pages of these dogs um, speaking. Um, but I'm really grateful that I found Anita and Rainey because I, I was like, oh, these are the perfect kind of channels um, for, for these dogs. And also the dogs, I think, need to witness something. Um, I need to kind of see... Uh, what their feral legacy has produced, um, which is these two girls. Yeah, you seem to have a penchant for using animals as uh, metaphors and embodiments in your writing, like bestiary. Um, you know, it's it, it features a folktale uh, about a woman who is embodied by a tiger spirit. And I can't help but notice like Gods of Want has like a bird on the cover. Uh, it seems like you're collecting just like, uh, like a menagerie of animals. So this is kind of a random question. Uh, are there any animals you'd like to utilize in the future? Yeah, I. this is probably my favorite topic to talk about because I love to talk about animals. It's it's honestly, it annoys the majority, vast majority of people who are, <laughs> who are forced <laughs> to spend time about, uh, spend time with me is my constant, incessant um, chatter about interesting animal facts that I've learned and that I feel a need to kind of metaphorically insert um, or like turn into a metaphor for something that I'm writing in the future. Um, there are so many animals. I recently wrote a story um, that's part of a collection I'm working on called The Four Horse Girls of the Apocalypse. Um, and <laughs> so it involves horse girls and horses as a figure of girlhood um, in a way that I'm really fascinated by. Um, I love fish. I would love to play around more in the aquatic world, way as well, aquatic mammals. Um, I very much regret that I did not become like an ornithologist or a marine biologist. Um, but birds always feature really prominently. Um, I grew up in like a bird family. My grandpa raised racing pigeons in Taiwan. Um, they were like gut, duck and geese farmers. Um, I grew up with chickens and parrots and finches. Um, so uh, birds are kind of always, um, I live in an aviary, <laughs> basically, that just travels with me, hovers around my head. Um, but yeah, I'm really, I'm really fascinated by um, the kind of metaphors that we can draw when, when thinking about animals, the sense of wonder that we often are able to feel toward animals, but are not necessarily able to turn that toward, our, toward ourselves, toward human bodies. I'm really fascinated by that. Um, 
And I also think it's really interesting. Like this is something I've recently been thinking about, but it's really fascinating the way that many people will oftentimes mourn or grieve or care more about animals than they do about people. And I think that the root of that is that we think of animals as innocent in the way that we don't necessarily think of people as as getting to be innocent. And we have this idea that only, you know, the quote unquote innocent can be mourned or grieved. Um, so that's something I'm really fascinated by, too. And I think that's really complicated. Like, who who do we allow to be innocent? Um, who do we give the privilege of being innocent is something I'm really fascinated by. Um, and especially when I'm writing about girlhood and um, these kind of young women who are coming into themselves and into their bodies and into their families. I think a lot about, oh, in what ways are they denied um, innocence? Yeah, I I think it's really interesting that like the voices of the dog women uh, came to you first before uh, the uh, the girlhood friendship between Anita and Rainey. Um, and I thought it was an interesting connection that you made between dogs and women because they're both considered creatures that are historically domesticated to fit into a family structure that can be very unnatural, like the patriarchy. Um, can you tell us about how you came across this connection and also just the inspiration for why you use dogs in the first place? Yeah, so I I oftentimes, um, when I'm playing with speculative elements, I it usually branches out first from um, turning a metaphor literal. Um, so I I remember growing up hearing the women in my family Whenever they would tell stories, they would often use the phrase, oh, when wives were dogs. Um, and basically kind of signal, signaling to me like, oh, this this was a different time. And this was a time in which wives were dogs. And there's also that Chinese phrase, if you marry a dog, you follow the dog. If you marry a chicken, you follow the chicken, which is another um, like Chinese phrase that I grew up with. And this idea that um, you basically sacrifice your life um, to sustain your husband's life and you know, if he metaphorically becomes a dog, you are also the dog. Um, and I was like, oh, what would it mean to turn all of these metaphors literal? Um, what if w- there was a time when wives actually were dogs? And that's when that conversation between Anita and her mother in the book springs up. Um, when Anita's mother discusses the fact that like, oh, I was the first generation of women. Before me, there were only dogs. Um, and it, that those were basically literal things that I heard growing up. Like, this is what was being told to me constantly. Um, but it, again, thinking of like, oh, what is the way to exaggerate that? To kind of push it to its most extreme in order to really... Um, delve into what that means, what the implications of that is. Um, so yeah, I think I was specific, I was really interested in, um, the family and like patriarchal ideas of lineage and the patrilineage as, um, uh, being very violent and, um, forcing the women in the family to transform themselves and become creatures. Oftentimes, um, unrecognizable to themselves or deferring their own desires or sacrificing their own desires in order to kind of midwife the dreams or goals of, or lives of others. Um, and what would it mean for the ferocity of that dog spirit to actually never really die, to be constantly alive, to be stoked in all these different ways? And um, what will happen then with Anita and Rainey, who are these two girls um, who experience their queerness as this opportunity to make a choice um, and to think about collective liberation and to think about uh, a future that could um, not only free themselves, 
but also be in some ways like a corrective or a healing or reparative uh, practice for uh, the generations that came before them. Um, so this idea of what I want is what I want for the future, what I want for the world. Yeah, it's interesting because now that I think about it, there aren't really any like major male characters in in your book, but the presence of patriarchy, especially like, you know, Asian slash Chinese Taiwanese flavored patriarchy is very present throughout, especially as someone um, who, you know, also grew up in in the culture. Like, yeah, I mean, it was interesting yeah, for think, me because I'm Korean yeah. and I like have never heard that phrase of like, oh, when you like marry a dog, you become a dog. So that's really interesting. Yeah, it's yeah, again, this this metaphor that I decided to turn literal, but I think there's very much this that idea of like, I mean, so many immigration stories. I've heard are just like, oh, well, we had to follow the man. <laughs> we had, we, he made a decision and we had to go along with it is like essentially the story. <laughs> um, and I was thinking a lot about how um, oftentimes like women have to bear the aftermath or the consequences of um, the decisions of the patriarch and are the ones who are really doing the daily nitty gritty care work of uh, in the invisible labor of um keeping the family alive, um, thinking about the safety of others as well, um, the nurturing and the nourishing of others. Um, and to me, I think of storytelling too, as oftentimes like women keeping the memories, keeping the stories. Um, and that oftentimes there are forms of warning or, um, moral questions or a desire to protect that is embedded in those stories that I'm really fascinated by. Um, so I'm always thinking about like, oh, what does it mean to inherit these stories and to in some ways like inherit loss as well? You brought up you brought up choicelessness and it makes me wonder if, you know, having making a choice is what feralness or uh, wildness means in the context of your writing. Um, like, do you have any mm. thoughts on on that? Like the definition of feralness in, in your book? Yeah, I think for me, it's thinking about like, what do we consider natural and unnatural um, in, in terms of in those very binary terms? And how can being feral or wild or ferocious destabilize those categories? So I think about it a lot, too, in terms of queerness of like, oh, what do we consider very unnatural versus, you know, considering the nuclear family or even capitalism or patriarchy to be very natural. We consider it to be like of nature and um, inherent, innate, something that we're born into. And we're very much, I feel like, you know, groomed or conditioned into believing that the systems of powers that we live in are, you know, totally and entirely natural. And I think that by writing about the characters having their own moral compasses or trying to discover their own moral compasses, trying to build their own moral worlds, it kind of destabilizes that binary of like, here's what's natural, here's what's unnatural, here's what you were born for, here's where you're, what you were born not to do. I think those categories and using language and defamiliarizing the language of violence um, or patriarchy, et cetera, or capitalism, I think is another way of doing that, um, of kind of hopefully portraying to the reader um, that what, what we consider unnatural might actually be very, very natural um, and worth celebrating. And what we consider natural may in fact be um, incredibly violent or um, misguided or perpetuating, you know, generations of trauma. So it's, it's kind of, I feel like my way of um, having the characters 
see the world through a very distorted lens and maybe from that distortion deciding for themselves like what are the choices that I have um, and what is the what is the kind of future that I'm interested in. Your writing also makes use of a lot of folklore and old wives tales like you know the registering of fate, uh, the banana ghosts, women that eat each other <laughs> um, <laughs> and you fold them into you know the reality of your world and your characters. Um, I'm just wondering if you can share a little bit how you became fascinated with this type of folklore, utilizing them in your writing. And I guess similar to the question about the characters, like, do you have just like a repository of like fables and folklore that you're waiting to use or do they come to you in the moment as you're writing? Yeah, I never really knew, especially when I first started writing um, and when I was exploring poetry as a form too, I really never knew that I would be interested in myth or folklore. And even now it remains somewhat mysterious to me why I'm so obsessed and feel the need to, <laughs> to drag <laughs> myth into every single thing that I do. Um, but I think that there's something inherently permission giving about writing about myth and folklore. Um, it's this inherently collective form that resists being intellectual property or resists being owned by a singular person. And I think as a result, there's this sense of like co-ownership um, in the sense that you don't really need permission to write about these stories, that they belong to all of us and that they're waiting. They're, they're almost raw material that can be endlessly transformed through our own lens. Um, and it's so funny because I oftentimes get questions from, from writers, aspiring writers who tell me like, oh, I have these stories, but I don't feel permission to write about them. And how do I feel like it's okay to do that? Um, and so I always talk about folklore and myth as this inherently inviting, um, kind of democratic form that really invites the participation of the collective. And again, like myths and stories are endlessly being digested and metabolized and transformed and alchemized and that's that's the beauty <laughs> that's the beauty of the form um of folklore is that we all have we all have authorship over those stories um and so i think there is something about it that maybe is just incredibly welcoming or always probing me always asking me to participate um, that draws me to that form. Um, and in terms of having, you know, a repository of, <laughs> of stories that I want to draw from, I think to a certain extent I do. I think there are certain tropes, um, you know, vampires and mermaids and werewolves and unicorns. I'm always thinking, I'm like, how can I write, you know, a mermaid story? How can I write a vampire story? I must, I have to. Zombies, um, tropes that kind of belong to us all that are part of our social imagination that I'm like, I absolutely must, because I think that's where my love of storytelling has always, uh, has always begun is with, you know, horror stories, uh, told in the dark, um, or fairy tales. Um, but on the, on the other side of that is I do do a lot of research, um, oftentimes when I'm writing. Um, and so those stories aren't always available for me to just access, or I don't always have them in mind as I'm writing or as I'm drafting. And it'll be this extra layer that I'll then kind of later think like, oh, where did this phrase come from? Or what are some stories, you know, if I'm writing a lot about the sea, like what are some creatures of the sea that maybe I have never heard of? Um, and I'll do my own research or sometimes I'll read other people's books as well and um, pluck stories and myths out of that and do more research. So it's a combination of there are certain tropes that I would love to, <laughs> to write into. Um, and then there are other things that I will um, do, do research and will the process of writing will be the exploration process. Yeah. I mean, it's such a I remember reading Chinese folklore as a kid and getting really scared because folklore, I think folklore, we get like the sanitized version here, right? Like the, the nursery rhyme versions of, of folktales, but like 
folk tales are meant to be like fables, like they're meant to be scary and and disturbing. And so I think it's it's a perfect bridge to genres of like horror and and things like that. Yeah, and also like I uh, I like how you brought up. Um, how like folk tales they belong to all of us we have permission to transform them and to digest them dif- differently because if we look at a lot of the original folk tales they are very skewed against women and mm-hmm. now like in a modern contemporary lens we could be like oh actually that's the patriarchy <laughs> like the woman did absolutely nothing wrong like she just wanted revenge that's fine she was justified and i feel <laughs> yeah. like the, nar- the villain narrative definitely changes with each generation yeah and a, a lot of ghosts and demons are oftentimes women and especially in chinese folklore um there are a lot of animal hybrid women, you know, fox spirits and snake spirits. And um, there's this idea that being animal is is demonic <laughs> and makes you strange, dangerous, evil, sinister, hungry. So maybe that's another piece of why I'm so fascinated by animals. And I'm really interested in writing human hybrid animals is because I grew up with those stories of snake women and fox women and Um, beast women, tiger women, um, who were all villainized because they were something other than human. um, And they were monstrous in some way that I was really interested in. And yeah, I I love that aspect. I'm I'm super fascinated by folklore and fairy tales as a form of imparting morality. Um, It it very much is a tool of teaching children. Um, It's where we first learn moral of the story. (laughs) Um, Fables are the way that we learn um, what it means to be good and and conversely, what it means to be bad. So I think that there is so much power and agency that I can give the characters in the story when they're telling their own myths or when they're building their own personal mythologies. It really is like this world building exercise um, where you get to make the rules of the world. You get to create the moral world um, by writing into myths and stories and thinking about, oh, who is the villain here? Who is the hero? Um, there is just something incredibly powerful and like on a cosmic level can be very can be on a very grand scale that I I really enjoy playing with. Yeah, I uh, wanted to move into your human characters or I guess your dog <laughs> human characters, yeah. um, Anita and Rainy. Um, like Anita is wild in her imagination. I feel like she's mm-hmm. very she's very much like this is my world and these are my rules and you have to follow it. And uh, Rainy, her friend, seems more like an accomplice uh, accomplice to Anita's like wild adventures. Uh, but 10 years later, Rainy has to kind of take Anita's place and kind of like take her surreal approach to rebuilding her friend's body. So can you tell us like how you developed their friendship and like how you created the arcs for both both of the girls yeah I love that I love that and I I yeah Anita is very much kind of the epitome of this is my world and you're living in it um and there's something I really admire deeply about that too um and yeah I created Anita and Rainey to be foils to each other in a lot of ways to to be equally kind of they love each other but then are also sometimes equally repulsed by each other and I think that's a really fascinating their kind of aversion and their attraction to each other are kind of part of the same bond um and to me I always imagined Rainy as almost being like a bridge between worlds she has one foot in the reality that she's inherited and one foot in Anita's fabulous reality and so she's always she she is kind of like this two-faced 
God, um, where she has one self in in one place and um, can never quite commit to to totally to totally um, veering onto one uh, toward one side or the other, um, which I feel like in some ways is like the position of a writer <laughs> is that you always have like one step in the present moment that you're experiencing or in the conversation that you're having, and then you also have one step in this other self that's like constantly recording and listening um and feeling that that storytelling part of yourself um so I find in some ways Rainey's consciousness um even though it was a little bit more like my own feeling of like bridging two worlds um was very difficult to write for me her perspective (laughs) her point of view I was like I don't know how to I don't know how to portray this exact feeling um but yeah I I really enjoyed that process of having Rainey to what extent she wanted to be accountable um for Anita's uh kind of wandering off into the dream world and uh to what extent she wanted to really commit herself to this mission of bringing Anita back, returning to Anita. Because I was thinking a lot about friendship as this um, as this bond that doesn't necessarily have a lot of social structures around it in the same way that maybe the bonds of a nuclear family or marriage, there's a, there's a legal structure, there are the, all these social expectations for what those relationships look like and should look like. And I feel like friendship is in a really interesting place because you don't necessarily have a legal commitment to someone or you don't necessarily have a whole like realm of social judgment attached to what that friendship could look like or should look like. So in some ways, I find friendship to be extremely liberating and actually this beautiful, like almost experimental space of love where you really get to decide for yourself how do I want to be loved how do I want to receive and give love in a way that that's it's often not safe or possible to do that within other forms of relationships be it like familial or romantic um so I would I really wanted to yeah to play into the possibilities of that friendship to really elevate friendship as like the end destination of love as the end all be all rather than seeing it as like oh a side relationship or just one step toward, you know, a more, um, I don't know, like a romantic or a familial relationship um, that tends to have more ideas of around like a, what that must look like and how you have to be in that relationship. Yeah, I think girlhood, friendships, kinship, it's, you know, it is a very special type of relationship, especially if you are a daughter of Asian immigrants. I feel like with uh, Asian culture, like daughters, uh, you have a quote in your book that says, you were bred to prioritize other lives. In contemporary language, you are an insurance policy. On the other hand, a son is a possibility. And uh, I I joke with my friends being like, oh my God, like I feel like we need group therapy for like the eldest daughters, (laughs) you know? And there's just like that, there's just like that, uh, bond of like collective trauma and um like how do you think girlhood friendship like interact with these inherited expectations and cultural obligations yeah I think it is this space of I I always say that it's almost like this one place where they can be selfish and in by being with each other they get to ask each other what do you want what do I want in a way that they don't necessarily get to ask those questions in any other space or relationship in their lives. And so it is this feeling of groundedness. And I feel this way too, when I'm around my friends, um, 
I feel this sense of like returning to myself, coming home to myself in a way that I find so beautiful and that I really wanted to write about, that they find a sense of origin within each other, that they are each other's ancestors, Um, which is another thing I I think about a lot too, is we, is the book explores, you know, lineage and ancestry, but I also really wanted to explore the concept of horizontal ancestry, which the poet Safia Hillo talks about, this idea that we also choose our ancestors um, and that inheritance is not just this vertical thing, it's a horizontal thing that we inherit from our friends um, and that we can choose a sense of origin. And people talk about it in terms of chosen family as well, um, that they have chosen ancestry. They have chosen each other um, as as ancestors in a way that I find um, really beautiful. And um, again, is this space of, of, of choice and self-determination that I think is really important for them. Anita and Rainey, um, you know, they have a very intense girlhood relationship. And although like they are given this space to be themselves and, you know, it it is a safe space, there's also a violence to it as well. Like (laughs) one of the girls even says uh, our scars are mapped back to each other. And Anita, like there there are scenes where she's like, I'm going to scar you now so that like we can be together forever uh why did you choose violence to be an aspect of their friendship yeah I mean I think that the way that they view violence it is a very kind of childish um perspective it's an almost morbid curiosity or like a strange way of seeing violence as a form of play um in a way that I I found very true to the way sometimes children will behave (laughs) where I'm like wow that's incredibly messed up but I don't think I think you think of it as a game (laughs) um I think that you're 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 almost kind of testing the boundaries of what's acceptable and what isn't acceptable and I think they're very much probing boundaries all the time constantly um, and then another aspect of that scarring story specifically is um, I was reading about the story that explains or behind the, the idea of the red thread of fate. Um, and it involves this boy and he encounters this deity on a bridge. And the deity is like, oh, I, I, by the way, you're fated to marry someone and I know exactly who you're going to marry. It's all predetermined. Um, and him being, you know, like a rebellious teenager is like, no, you know, F you, you don't know me. You're not my dad is basically <laughs> the, the essential, the, 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 the breakdown of that conversation. And the God gestures, um, to the, um, into the distance and is, and says, oh, that woman, uh, over there in the distance, that's who you're going to marry someday. And he says, no. And he, he grabs a rock and he throws it at her and it strikes her in the face and it gives her a scar on her eyebrow. And then years later, when he's getting married and the bride reveals her face and takes off her veil, he notices a scar on her eyebrow. And he asked her, like, where did you get that scar? And she was like, well, you wouldn't believe it. So crazy. I was standing <laughs> standing in the woods by this bridge one day and this rock came sailing out of nowhere, struck me in the face. Um, and so it's kind of this confirmation that he never could have subverted his fate. And actually, interestingly, by trying to rebel against fate, by throwing that rock at her, he actually created the very mark that then told him that he was meeting his fate. And if he hadn't tried to rebel against his fate, he might have never even known that that fate even existed um, because she wouldn't have had that scar. So I was really fascinated by this idea of like, oh, trying to rebel against fate is what makes your fate visible. It's like by trying to fight against futility, (laughs) 
um, that futility is becomes legible to you. Um, I, I thought I was like, oh, there's something really messed up about this story. And also that the woman is just like, she just gets struck in the head by a rock. <laughs> um, uh, and is pretty much voiceless in the story. And I was like, oh, it's really fascinating. Like, who does fate apply to? Um, and who do we consider um, to be kind of under the bind of fate? Um, and I find that that's often like an aspect of intergenerational trauma or the way that daughters are raised is this idea that like you cannot really... Um, that there is no way to subvert, like this is the way things are basically, um, uh, which is fate, um, or that this is a cycle that you're kind of locked into um, and you don't really have a choice and you don't really have an opportunity to um, to rewrite that fate. Um, and so I was just, I was, yeah, I was just thinking a lot about like, oh, what does it mean for fate to apply to certain people, not to others? Um in what ways is fate kind of collective as well? Like, what does it mean to kind of want to write toward um, toward breaking these generational curses that are collective? Um, yeah, so that was where the scar aspect <laughs> came from. I was like, I have to write about how absolutely wild it is that um, she just has this, like, scar on her head for the rest of her life. Yeah, what did um, she I do? Need like, <laughs> I know, <laughs> she I know. She didn't do She's anything like, to deserve that. <laughs> she had no idea about this entire story either and that he had thrown <laughs> that she was marrying the very person <laughs> who threw that rock um which is, is yeah it's it's like it's messed up on so many levels but I feel like that's kind of also the impulse about of the desire to write about myth and folklore is to have a little bit of friction with it have a little bit of conflict with it and write into those spaces of of curiosity and maybe aversion at times <laughs> You mentioned earlier in, in the beginning of this interview that you your writing style is like very maximalist and your prose is very much saturated in poetry and knowing your history with poetry, it makes complete sense. Uh, but the story is disorienting. There's a lot of things going on and I feel like it challenges your reader to participate. You can't just like passively navigate the world you kind of really have to listen to uh to the pros and kind of like you know let go of logic and that is a skill that is uh not natural to everyone so mm. do you have any advice for readers who are new to your style of writing and you know uh for the readers who are like I have no idea what's happening uh, <laughs> do you have any advice for for those types of readers yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's I I don't want to like police anyone's reading experience or necessarily feel like there's any right or wrong way to read. And um, I think part of it, like I do, oftentimes get feedback that's like, oh, I just don't know what's happening. I just don't think I understood it. Um, and I'm always like, that's fine. Like, there's nothing to understand, actually. Like, <laughs> that's the secret is there's actually nothing to understand, to learn, or to extract from anything that I ever write. Um, and I feel like we're oftentimes taught in school that when we read something, we have to learn from it and we have to have a takeaway and we have to, you know, pull something concrete from the book, from the text. Um, but I find myself as a reader, especially... Um, someone who's oftentimes very interested in poetry and kind of language first, language leading um, text um, that kind of pulls me away from a more maybe logical space, maybe to a more associative place or mo more imaginative place that um, sometimes it's okay to just like not understand anything, to just experience it. Um, and at, at least for me, I find that I 
I enjoy, I really love reading experiences where I do feel kind of disoriented um, or not grounded or in some ways like defamiliarized. I think that's what I love so much about poetry is that language can um, be this like very malleable material that defamiliarizes us from how we normally use language. And I always love that feeling of like, oh my God, I didn't, I've never thought about this word this way. Or I feel like I've entered almost this like metaphysical, magical space. Um, that has always been really enjoyable for me. But I also totally understand that every reader is like, has different expectations and is looking for a different experience. And sometimes those expectations will be met and sometimes they won't. Um, so I'm always like, you know what, however you experienced it or didn't experience it or didn't enjoy it or enjoyed it, like that is all equally valid and completely belongs to, to you as a reader. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, those are my general thoughts. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's a very healthy perspective as a writer because I feel like there's there's two camps, like the camp where it's like, don't read reviews, like like the work has been out there. It's not solely mine anymore. And then the other camp is like, no, this is my work. This is like my art. So I am going to, uh, <laughs> I'm going to hunt down all of these uh, one star reviewers and it, it turns into like a true true crime case but yeah <laughs> yeah yeah well I I do believe in not reading your reviews I think it's just it's just healthy as a person to not to sometimes not do that um just but I also think like especially as someone who well I used to write Goodreads reviews I don't anymore when I was a teenager I definitely wrote a lot um that reviews really much are about us as readers and what our expectations for the stories are um and whether or not the book then meets those expectations um, so in some ways, I think there's a way to like kind of step away and not take any review so personally, kind of knowing that, oh, this review is about the reader. It's not really fully about me um, as the author. I think that's a healthy, healthy distance to have. And I think it is ultimately true uh, because we all go into consuming any form of media with, you know, certain expectations. Um, and then it's about how we interact with how that media interacts with those expectations. Yeah. I mean, my personal journey with your book was once I like, I think everything changed when I decided just to take everything you write at face value. Like this is just stuff that's happening and it's real. <laughs> and it became much more easier to get into it as opposed to like, because your writing is so steeped in metaphor that if you spend time trying to parse everything, you're just going to drive yourself a little nuts. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah, it's funny because like I, I always joke to people like I feel like my my writing style is very influenced by hoarding because <laughs> I feel like I grew up around a lot of hoarders. <laughs> and, I mean, if you come from an spaces, Asian family, I feel yeah, like all, they are all. just natural <laughs> hoarders. Yeah, yeah. But it's almost like it's like I think of it almost like as as this like sandbox or this room of hoarded objects and you can kind of choose what you want to pluck out or what you want to take from it and you can leave behind Um everything else um and it can or maybe it's like standing in a torrential downpour or i don't know like whatever the <laughs> metaphor is um but i definitely feel like as a writer um with this very like maximalist um impulse um that oftentimes that's what the writing feels like it feels like hoarding um or just like this this downpour of like undifferentiated objects that I'm then like, oh no, I have to figure out what's important here. Like I have to figure out what I actually want to highlight on the page. Because otherwise it's going to be one just like Where's Waldo-esque <laughs> illustration where every single object is like equally important. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. and your writing is just so, it's, it's very poetic that like, 
just reading it and occasionally going, huh, that was a really cool line or that was a really cool like turn of phrase <laughs> was a lot of fun too. It was like found a lot of really cool, you know, if you're listening to spoken words, parts you want to snap to, right? There's a lot of that in your mm. book that I really liked. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That means a lot to me. Uh, so I know that you have a novella that's coming up. Um, are you allowed to talk about it? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's available for pre-order now. So, you know, it's it's coming. <laughs> yeah. Can you give us a little preview? On what it's about yeah so it's another friendship girlhood friendship book which wasn't un- it was completely unintentional but i will say what's fun about this novella and may- maybe this is scary actually maybe people will hear this and be like oh no <laughs> never reading this um but coffeehouse press wrote to me actually um and was like oh we're starting this novella series and we're looking for novellas that are like too weird um, too strange for your publisher in a way, like things that wouldn't be able to find any other space because they're just like too strange. And I was like, say less, <laughs> say no more. You want something that is so bizarre that only you will publish it. Absolutely. I'll do that. And I will deliver. <laughs> <laughs> so this is my extremely strange baby, really, really weird child. Um, and I took that challenge very seriously. And I feel like speaking of extremes of a style, <laughs> um, I, I, I very much was, I feel like liberated from the idea of like, oh, what is marketable or what is what like comprises of a narrative that people, um, will really expect. Um, so I had so much fun and I feel like it contains like a certain essence of me that I've never been able to portray on the page ever in my entire life. Like there's just some kernel, (laughs) um, that I, some kernel of like the abject or like the truly, I mean, Organ is grotesque, but I feel like with Cecilia, I got to play with like a different kind of grotesque um, that I really enjoyed. Um, and it actually um, sprang from a short story that was published in Hyphen magazine um, called Cecilia that I had written and published and thought I was done with. I was like, I'm done with these characters. I'm done with this piece. Um, but as I, as I was writing this novella, I kept trying to start from scratch. Um, and I just, I was like, oh, I'm going to write about aliens. Like, I'm going to write about this, like, a- lesbian alien story. And there's going to be, like, an abduction. Like, it's going to be, like, strange alien erotica. And then I was like, no, I'm going to write about crows. <laughs> I'm going to write about crow- Japanese crow demons. And I kept pulling all these things out. And none of them, none of these elements were working. And finally, I, I was like, well, I've been looking at this short story. And I, even though it's already published, I keep returning to the link, which is very embarrassing. If anybody work, works on the back end of that website, they just see, like, daily hits of that story that's just me. <laughs> it's just the author <laughs> reading her own story. Um, I was like, there's something about the story that feels unresolved. There's something about the characters on, on this page that I feel like I just skimmed the surface of. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to start with this short story. I'm going to write from it. And it, it spiraled into this novella, which was, spiraled is the key word, <laughs> um, which was really a really fun process for me. Yeah. I mean, I for one am happy that you're living your best creative life, like writing whatever you want. <laughs> um, I'm, you know, after reading this book, personally, I would be curious, but you know, for our listeners who have read the book or are thinking of reading the book, um, that will either excite you or frighten you. But yeah, it, it exists. Yeah, I've gotten equal responses. I've gotten people going like, "Oh, your grossest book yet?" Like they're like, "Oh no," <laughs> and then other people are like, "Oh, so exciting!" Like the, your your weirdest self gets to kind of emerge and pop its head out. That's so fun. Um, so I'm, you know, it's been a full spectrum. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's really cool that you're allowed to do this and get it published too. I think that's, that says a lot, uh, at least 
to some corners of the publishing world that they're they're willing to give a chance for this, which is I think personally exciting as someone who covers this part of the industry, you know. Yeah, no, it's so deeply exciting. Um, and especially to get to do it in the novella form, which is this form that like, I think we consider to be like totally not sellable or not marketable, <laughs> at least in the US. Um, so it's it's even more permission, I think, to um, to fully make that form your own. Yeah. Well, Kami, thank you so much for joining us on Books and Bubble. It was such a pleasure to talk to you um, about your your career and your book and your upcoming book, too. Really exciting. Um, thank yeah. you. Hopefully we'll have you on again or, or we'll work with you again. But thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I really appreciate both of your questions. They were so thoughtful and insightful and thought-provoking. And I'll, I'll definitely continue to think about a lot of these questions. They really resonate with me um, as I move forward in, in my writing life. And yes, hopefully the novella doesn't like totally um, <laughs> disgust people to the point of like no return. But, you know, I maybe mean, that, that'll be that my is legacy. What I mean, some people are into yeah, that. Yeah, I know. know. They asked for that. Maybe that's kind of exciting. Maybe I mean, I feel I, like I, that is a so trigger terrifying. warning in itself. <laughs> and if you choose to pick up the book, that's on you. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. 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 I mean, some people might be into um, it. So, yeah. It's all good. Yeah. So, there's an audience. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that was Kaming Chang. Uh, her latest novel, Organ Meats, is now available at booksellers everywhere, including, as always, the Books and Boba bookshop. So if you head on over to booksandboba.com and click on the bookshop link, you can find books on sale. And your purchases not only support the Books and Boba podcast, but also um, your local bookstore. So um, definitely it's a win win. I guess before we go, Rira, can you remind us what we are reading for the month of December? So we are reading Foul Lady Fortune by Chloe Gong. Um, It is a book that takes place in 1931, alternative Shanghai. So if you guys have read These Violent Delights, you'll know that it is a Romeo and Juliet spinoff. So yeah, like this was Marvin's pick and I was pleasantly surprised. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean... I originally was going to pick a holiday-themed book, but then I realized that we haven't really read any of Chloe's books for book club. We, we read um, These Violent Delights um, for an author chat we had for a few years ago. So as someone who loves the 1930s pre-war Shanghai aesthetic and the premise of spies, fake marriage, and um, supernatural powers, I'm like, you know, this book is just calling to me. So I definitely took advantage of, of my pick to, to choose a book that hits everything on my checklist. So excited to read this book with you all. Um, as always, if you've finished the book already and have thoughts to share, um, please let us know either on Goodreads or our Discord server if you're a Patreon supporter. And we'll make sure to include your feedback on our end of month um, book club discussion. Uh, but with that, thank you so much for listening. Um, thank you once again to Kamin Chang for being on our podcast. And we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Mira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.
Life gets a little crazy sometimes. Sometimes it's confusing, sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's beautiful, and sometimes it can just piss us off. Enter First of All Podcast. It's a safe space for real conversations about the things that we all struggle with, celebrate, contemplate, and work through in our daily lives. I'm your host, Mindy Chang. I'm an actor, filmmaker, and entrepreneur with a colorful background, a full life, and brilliant friends who I love to unpack life with to share with all of you. They are everyday people like you and me, ranging from award-winning artists, cultural icons, powerful CEOs, my hilarious childhood friends, and even my mom. Tune in for honest conversations on mental health, dating, sex, family, career, culture, and everything in between. Listen to First of All wherever you find podcasts, part of the Potluck Podcast Collective. 